Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, Hope Community Church, it is so good to be with you guys this weekend. And uh, let me just start out by saying, God did it again. God blew open the waters and we got our contract with Wake County Schools, which means that we can open our virtual learning centers indefinitely way past September 15th as long as we need them. Yes, get real excited, get real excited because here's the next part. As long as we have volunteers. And here's the thing, the more volunteers we have, the more students we can have. So we need you to volunteer, whether it could be a four-hour block during the week, a two-hour block during the week, two two-hour blocks. We need you to volunteer at one of our campuses. And you know, it came up, a lot of people think that you have to come in and teach science or math or kinesiology. I took that in college, I thought I'd throw that out there. But you have to take something like that, you don't. You just have to stand there and make sure that the kids are on their computers doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then we have times where we build relationships with them and we have lunch with them and we have some free time with them. But literally you're just there to be an incredible role model for these young people, to give them someone that they can trust, that someone the parents can trust. And so we need you to sign up, okay? So go, go to the website, sign up, go to the, whatever they put on the screen, just go there and do it. Just sign up and it's going to make a difference. So that's the first thing I'm excited about. And once again, God just proves himself faithful. God, God makes his plans. He makes his plans. And I'll tell you what, nothing's gonna stand against him. Now here's the next one. Don't forget that we're beginning a brand new service on September 13th, not 30th, sorry about that last week. September 13th at our Apex campus, 9.30 in the morning. Tickets will be available just like they are th Thursday nights at the Raleigh campus. Uh, you can get them. There'll be a few hundred people, plenty of room to social distance, and uh, you can get those tickets starting uh, about uh, just a few days before the 13th. You, we'll get you all that information. Also, uh, if you're not ready to go out, we understand it. Uh, you, we want you to just encourage you to be involved in our online experience, okay? We're working at improving it every week, and if you can get together with a few friends, it makes it so much better. In fact, I have a picture of us with some of my friends last week, and you can, you'll see that when they put the picture up, we actually practiced the whole six feet thing right there, so you can, you can see that going on. So listen, my messages are even better when I get to watch it with my friends, so I'm just saying, it's a way that you can enjoy church together. Now, this is the last and final week of our series that we've been calling Origin Story. It's a series every year where we take five books of the Bible as we're working our way through the Bible, and we get an overview of each of these five books so that we understand how they fit into the big story, God's story, the Bible. This week, I am so excited because we have come to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We've come to the story of Esther. And if you have never heard the story of Esther, you're going to discover that she is an absolutely incredible woman. But not only that, she is the perfect example that it only takes one person who's willing to make a stand to change our culture, to change society, 
to change the world. You're gonna see that in the story of Esther. Now, if we're gonna understand the story of Esther, uh, I have to introduce you to five of the main characters. First of all, there's a king named Xerxes. Uh, he's the king of Persia, and if his name sounds familiar, it's because we met his son last week, Artaxerxes. So Xerxes is the father of Artaxerxes, which allowed Nehemiah, who allowed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. So Xerxes is the king of Persia, and he reigns over a kingdom that stretches from what we now know as India to Ethiopia. We're talking about a massive empire, which means that he was probably the most powerful man on the planet during this time of history. By the way, speaking of history, this was also a time in history that was unprecedented dictatorship. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, the law of the Medes and the Persians, okay? That comes from Xerxes. If Xerxes said something, it was law. He didn't have to work it through the house. He didn't have to get it through the Senate. If he said it, it was law, not even open for discussion. Then there's Vashti. Vashti's the queen of Persia. She's Xerxes' wife. The third piece, person you need to know is a man named Haman. Now understand, Haman is the villain in the story. He's Persian. He holds, a, he holds a very influential position in King Xerxes' court. But as you're gonna see in this story, he, he's arrogant, he, he's, he's an incredibly obnoxious individual, he only looks out for number one, but this is what you know as it need to know as it relates to the story. He absolutely hates the Jews. Just follow that away. Fourth, there's a Jew named Mordecai, he's the good guy. Uh, he's a very godly, he's a very righteous man, but he has a very, very difficult task of rearing his young cousin. Her parents have died. She became an orphan. He was older. He took her in, and now he's rearing her. And then the hero of our story is the fifth character you need to know. Her Jewish name is Hadassah. Isn't that a beautiful name? I don't know why no one's ever named their daughter Hadassah. But her name, Jewish name, Hadassah, but we know her by her Persian name, it's Esther. Now, the story takes place at the height of the Persian Empire. Uh, you may remember from our series that the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And as a result, uh, for 70 years, the Babylonians ruled over the Jews. But at the end of that 70 year period, God said, after 70 years, I'm gonna set you free. So what happens is the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. And, and so the Persians kind of get the spoils of war. They inherit the nation of the Jews. But the Persians are very, very kind toward the Jews. And Cyrus, who's the king of Persia at that time, he's like, I don't really want you here or need you here. In fact, if you would like to return home to the land of Judah, if you would like to return to Jerusalem, I would like to give you that opportunity. And we've learned in this series that the people began to make their way back over a 95-year period of time. The first group went back under a guy named Zerubbabel, let's say it together, Zerubbabel, we love that name. They went back under Zerubbabel and they rebuilt the temple. And then the next group went back under the leadership of a guy named Ezra and they reestablished worship. And then 12 years later, as we saw last weekend, the third group went back under the leadership of Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. But you gotta understand, a lot of the, uh, the Jews stayed in Persia. I mean, a lot of them were born in Persia. This is the only home they had ever known. So. Even though they were free to go back to the land of Judah, a lot of the Jews decided, you know what? We've settled here in Persia. We're gonna stay in Persia. And I want you to know that Mordecai and Esther, the uncle and Esther, okay? These are two of the Jews that remain back in Persia. Now, let me just show you how the story unfolds. And I really believe that this could be a Broadway musical, okay? If anybody has that kind of talent, maybe some of our worship guys do. But when the curtain goes up on chapter one, Xerxes, the king, is hosting a banquet. Now. 
This is not your typical banquet where you get, get there at six and leave you know, by 11 o'clock at night. This banquet lasted, are you ready for this? For 180 days. Now that's a banquet. That's the kind of banquet you have in Texas, right? That is a big banquet. And in fact, to put it in perspective, the coronavirus has lasted about half of this banquet. And it seems like the coronavirus has lasted forever. So this banquet lasts for 180 days. And during this 180 days, he invites rulers and politicians, uh, military leaders, dignitaries all across the empire. And they come, and I'm sure there's wine, and there's women, and they're singing, and they're parting their brains out, and they're getting smashed. In fact, Xerxes is so smashed, at some point in this 180-day banquet, he decides that he is going to put his stuff on display, his wealth on display, so everyone can know how how powerful he is. So he drags out his oil paintings. You know, he parades his racehorses, his exotic cars, his butterfly collection, you know, his stamp collection, all out in front of all the people. And while he is intoxicated, he comes up with what he thinks is an absolutely incredible idea. And we've been around people and we know alcohol will do that. It will make you come up with some ideas that you think are brilliant ideas. Like, you know what? That alligator looks nice to me. I believe I can pet him. So you do those kinds of things when you're drinking, right? We've all heard those stories. So he's drunk, and this is what he decides. I got all my friends here. This would be a great time to bring in Queen Vashti and show her off. Let her strut her stuff in front of all my friends so everyone in the kingdom can see just how beautiful my trophy wife is. So he sends a messenger to get Vashti. But when Vashti hears about it, and this says something about her character, you know, they're like, the king wants you to dress up in something a little sexy and come on down to the banquet hall. He wants to show you off. And she's like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? She is just not going to do it, right? And so look what it says in chapter 1, verse 12. As a result, the king became furious and burned with anger. I mean, think about it. He has all these dignitaries. Xerxes has all of these friends. They're waiting. It's been announced. They're waiting for the queen to come and strut her stuff. She refuses. So he's embarrassed. But not only is he embarrassed, he's angry. His reputation is on the line. So he gets all of his advisors together. And they're like, King, listen, we can't, I can't state this enough. We got a potential nightmare, okay, on our hands. Verse 17 of chapter 1. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and they will despise their husbands and say, you know, with a head bob, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come, right? This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So his advisors are like, listen, King, this is a big deal. This could come back to haunt all of us. This could turn into Persian wives gone wild, right? So Xerxes, he's like, well, I'll fix this right now. I'm gonna make, it, I'm gonna make an example out of Queen Vashti. So he issues a decree in verse 19 of chapter one. Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. I'll show her. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So Xerxes says, I know how to fix this. I am going to legislate submission. And when I put Queen Vashti in her place, all of the women of Persia, oh yeah, they'll get the message. They'll straighten up. They're gonna listen. So it says in chapter one, verse 22, he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler 
over his own household. Can I get a witness, right? But no, 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 but it is a great day, okay? This is a great moment for Persian men's rights. Okay, this is what's going on right here. So the men are all jacked up, but Xerxes needs a new queen. And the curtain comes down on act one. As the curtain goes up on act two, chapter two, they're planning a beauty contest. And they're planning a beauty contest to find the next queen of Persia. Now I know that's not very you know, popular with ladies these days, and it's not very politically correct, but that's the way it worked in the land of Persia, fifth century BC. So they have this beauty contest, and guess who emerges? Guess who comes on the scene? It's Esther. And so it says in Esther chapter two, verse eight, when the king's orders and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Haggai was the king's eunuch. I mean, if you're gonna have somebody watch over a bunch of virgins that you're gonna choose your next wife from, you probably want a eunuch to do it, okay? So he puts his eunuch in charge. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So, I mean, they are taken in, and you can read it on your own, but they have all these beauty treatments. They're treated lavishly. They, they have spa days, you know. They do that thing you ladies do with that piece of thread where you get your eyebrows under control. I don't know what that's all about. But anyway, that's all going on. Now, let me just give you a little side note. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. She's Jewish, remember? Because Mordecai, her uncle, had forbidden her to do so. Why? Safety reasons? A lot of bigotry going on? A lot of discrimination? As you're gonna see, there's a lot of Persians who didn't really care for the Jews, but they had this Miss Persia contest, right? And I'm sure it started out with a swimsuit competition, you know? And then went to the talent part. Esther probably was a phenomenal juggler. She probably juggled. And, and then the evening gown, right? And the interview. And they probably all said, if I'm the queen, I'm going to strive for world peace. But all, you know, all of these ladies performed for the king. And then it says in Esther 2, verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, it may not seem like it, but this is an epic moment. Because this young Jewish woman is promoted to the highest position of any woman in Persia. She is the first lady, a Jewish young lady is the first lady of the Persian Empire. And there's this little detail at the end of chapter two that if you were just reading the story of Esther, you would probably read right over. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but there's an assassination plot against King Xerxes. You can read about it in chapter two, verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana, another great name. Don't, don't name your daughter Big Thana, but another great name if you got a boy. Big Thana and Teresh. Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai, found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And as I said, if you were just casually reading through the story of Esther, you would think that this was like a needless detail. But that's kind of the first hint in the story that God is working his stuff behind the scenes. So just keep that filed away. Well, the plot deepens when the curtain goes up on chapter three because now Haman, the villain, comes on the scene and it says in chapter three, verse one, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. In other words, Haman became like the king's right-hand man. 
But as I said earlier, there's one thing that Haman will not put up with. He just can't stand, and it's the Jews. So understand, Haman is just a good, old-fashioned bigot. In fact, he would love nothing more than to see the Jews exterminated, to wipe off the face of the earth. Just so you know, this was not original with Hitler. It goes all the way back to the 5th century B.C. By the way, let me just say something here because it's in our culture. It's in our, it's in our news right now. Let me just say Racism and prejudice is something, a sin, that has existed as long as there has been mankind. But that doesn't mean we just accept it. Just because it's been around forever, that doesn't mean that we just, we just, we just tolerate, it, tolerate it. And there's a lot of tension and a lot of hurt going on in our culture right now. And I truly believe what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians when he talked about the body of Jesus Christ. You know what he said? He says, when one suffers, we all suffer. We suffer together. And I want you to understand that prejudice and racism, as I said last week, is a long-standing wrong. And long-standing wrongs are seldom easily corrected. So this is just what I would ask of our congregation, that you would continue to pray that what God would give those of us who are leaders here wisdom. Because we are committed to being a part of the solution, but we by no means think that we have all the answers. And if anybody had all the answers, it would be easily solved. But this is a time where part of our body is hurting and we need to be praying for one another and encouraging one another right now. Now, back to the story. Haman, this Jew hater, he's been promoted to Xerxes' right-hand man and so he's leaving the court and it says in chapter three, verse two, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this. Like, you will honor this man, right? But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So Mordecai, he sees Haman coming. He hears about his promotion. He doesn't really care. He's not gonna honor him. He's not gonna bow down to him. He refuses to salute him. And that doesn't go unnoticed by Haman. Chapter three, verse five. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Wow. And time passes. And Haman is looking for his moment. And finally one day, Haman gets some alone time with the king. And he's like, hey, let me bounce something off of you, king. And he begins to lay out his plan, but he doesn't tell him all the details. Chapter three, verse eight. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs, they're different from those of all other people. They do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And Xerxes is like, wow, I can't have people not obeying my laws. Yeah, I think that sounds good to me. So he makes a decree. And remember, this is the law of the Medes and Persians. It is now law. And this decree becomes a part of all of that. And when Mordecai, when he gets word of this, he's obviously disturbed. He's obviously troubled. And so Mordecai, he's thinking, I've got to get word to Esther. And so he gets word to Esther and he says, listen, I want you to use your influence as the queen. I want you to use your influence as Xerxes' wife to somehow get involved, do whatever you need to do to prevent this 
disaster. Now, you got to understand, this is a high-risk request because in these days, queens were to be queenly, queens were to be beautiful, but queens were to be quiet. In fact, if they became politically active, they were often deposed, or I would say de-queened, right? But Mordecai's thinking, that doesn't really matter. I mean, this, is, this could be it. This could be our only hope. I've got to get this news to Esther. Maybe, possibly, somehow, she could do something. But I want you to notice how Esther responds when she gets Mordecai's request in chapter 4, verse 11. She says, let me explain to you how the court works. All the king's officials and the people of the royal promises know, they know, this is common knowledge, that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, in other words, if you're not invited by the king, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. Well, that's not a great option. That they be put to death unless, maybe the king's having a good day, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them. If I could get one of these from my staff, that would be incredible. But anyway, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But notice what she says. 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. I haven't seen my husband in 30 days. So Esther's basically saying this. Hey, listen, I see, I see what's going on. I sense the need. I would love to get involved. But Mordecai, I don't think there's anything I can do. My, my job, you know, is to be quiet and look pretty, right? But notice Mordecai's response in chapter four, verse 12. And this is the pivotal part of the story. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, at this time, and this is a phrase as many times as I've read Esther and talked through Esther, I'd never really noticed it before, but it jumped out at me. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You know what that's saying? Mordecai understood the sovereignty of God. He understood, he had read the law. He knew that God promised Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham, you're gonna be the father of a great nation and through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. It was a reference that through the lineage of Abraham, the Jews, the Messiah would come. And Mordecai's like, hey, the, you know, it hasn't showed up yet. Messiah hasn't shown up yet. So he's basically saying, listen, relief and deliverance for the Jews, it's gonna come from somewhere, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position. Here's the key phrase of the book of Esther for such a time as this. Who knows, maybe the reason that God had you crown the queen of this incredible nation of Persia is for such a time as this. I mean, think about it, Esther. You have the ear of the king like no one else. It's now or never. So Esther responds in chapter four, verse 16. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, that's quite a statement. Esther says, you know what? I'm gonna do what needs to be done and I'm gonna do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And if I perish, I perish. It's that Patrick 
Henry moment. Do they teach history in school anymore? I'm gonna have to start teaching more history during my messages, but it's that Patrick Henry moment in, in 1775 when the colonists were rallying together to make sure that they could get out from under Great Britain rule. And you know what Patrick Henry said? Oh man, give me liberty or give me death. It's one of those kinds of moments. Let me just say something. There are gonna be times in our lives where we will be in a situation and we, I'm just telling you as Christians, we will be forced to stand alone. Some of you may be in a place like that right now. Right? But you gotta stand alone. You gotta do the right thing and if it means the end of a relationship, well it means the end of a relationship. If it means the end of a career or a job, well then it means the end of a career or a job. But see, there's a principle at stake that's far more important than the people that are involved and the relationships that are involved. There's a principle that's at stake that's far more important than the consequences and even at the risk of being misunderstood, even at the risk of maybe being rejected. You have to stand alone and you're kind of like Esther, you know? I'm just gonna have to do what God has told me to do. I need to do the right thing and if I perish, I perish. That's where Esther finds herself. That's the decision she makes. And she goes to work. And she begins to plan. And, and in good typical female fashion, she's very wise how she sets this up. See, a guy would have just run into the king's palace and said, Ed Haman's a jerk, right? And without the golden scepter, you know, that would have been the end of him, right? He'd lost his head over it. But she's, she's it's kind of, you ever seen, I'm embarrassed to say this, but have you ever seen the big Greek fat wedding? You ever seen that? I'm embarrassed to say that I've seen that, but I've seen it. Do you remember the scene where the, the father and the daughter, they're having an argument and they're not getting along, so mom steps in and talks to the daughter, remember that? And she says, the man is the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. Oh yeah, you ladies know exactly what I'm talking about, you little manipulators, right? But anyway, <laughs> this is what Esther's thinking. The neck's gotta go to work. Got to turn the king's head. Okay, so you get to chapter five, verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. I'd hope so, he hadn't seen her in 30 days. He was pleased with her and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hands. Proverbs 21, verse one. The hearts of kings are like streams of water, right? So he does the whole golden scepter thing, right? And she sees it, and she's relieved. And she approaches the king. Esther, Esther chapter five, verse three. Then the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. See, Esther's brilliant. She knows no guys are gonna turn down a free meal, right? So she, she's got this banquet plan. And I'll make it shorter, but they go to the banquet and they sit down at the banquet and once they're having the banquet, King Xerxes says to Esther, so what is it you want? What can I do for you? And he says, well, Esther says, tomorrow, I wanna have another banquet. And I want you both to come to the banquet tomorrow and at the banquet tomorrow, I'll tell you what I want. So get this picture, they're at a banquet. And Esther says, the reason I call this banquet is to announce another banquet. Now, again, there's no Netflix in these days, okay? Maybe college football's been canceled. There's not a whole lot to do. There's just a whole lot of banquets going on. But she's like, I'm announcing a banquet that I want you to come to tomorrow, and I'm gonna have this banquet for someone who is especially important. Now, you know that Haman is loving this. 
I mean, in his mind, he's in the inner circle. You've got the king, you've got the queen, and you've got Haman. So it says in Esther chapter five, verse nine, Haman went out that day happy. I mean, he was on an emotional high, high spirits when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. In other words, he hated him all the more. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the kings had honored him. He was now the right-hand guy, right? How he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. But he just can't resist, so he adds. But when I walked out, Mordecai, that Jew, again, would not bow down to me. Now, let me tell you what Haman's wife should have said. Okay, let me tell you what Zeresh should have said. Um, this is how you respond to a wimpy husband. Okay, write this down, ladies. You know, by the way, one of my biggest challenges on staff is when I have guys on staff that are talented and their wives just tell them all the time how talented they are. And no matter if they're being stupid, they just tell them how brilliant they are and nobody really understands them and, and nobody's as smart as they are. It's crazy. Let me tell you something. The best thing you can have in life, men, is a good wife who tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Zeresh was not that kind of wife, okay? This is what she should have said. Haman, why don't you grow up and put on your big boy panties? You got the respect of the king, the king's staff, me, the kids, the entire city. Isn't that enough? Quit obsessing over this one Jew. Just let it go. That's what she should have told him. I promise you, that is what Laura would have told me. But she doesn't do that. Instead, verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, hey, this is what I'd do if I were you. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. It's 75 feet. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. That's the answer to your question. Hey, then once you got that taken care of, go with the king to the banquet and have a good old time. This suggested and delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Now God, it just kind of ramps it up what he's going, what's going on behind the scenes. The king goes to bed, he can't sleep, he's got insomnia. He watches the late shows, he can't fall asleep. He watches the news, he can't fall asleep. He even turns on HGTV, he cannot fall asleep, right? And so he asked for the public records. He thinks, How, what could be more boring than the public records? Maybe I can read them for a while, I'll get drowsy and I'll fall asleep. But as he's reading the public records, he finds something written in the public records about a guy named Mordecai. I told you to remember it. Esther chapter six, verse two, it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officials, officers who, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Like, did anybody give this guy a medal? Did we give him a cash reward? Did we get him a new chariot? Did we send him on a vacation anywhere? I mean, he saved my life, that's a big deal. We gotta do something for this guy. Who's around? Look what it says in verse four. The king says, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impelling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, hey, Haman just came in. He's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than moi? I mean, who's more honorable than me? How arrogant is this guy? 
So he answered the king, well, this is what I would recommend. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let him robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king said, that is the best idea I've heard all day. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> I'm telling you, you ought to read the Bible. You can't make this stuff up. Great idea, Haman, go find Mordecai, set it up. So Haman got the robe and the horse, he robed Mordecai, he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, probably more like this, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor, right? <laughs> he did it, I'm confident his heart was not in it, and I can guarantee you that by now, Haman has lost his appetite. But see, this isn't the end of the story. He's still gotta go to Esther's banquet. Chapter seven, the curtains go up, verse one. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet and as they were drinking wine, that's a common theme all the way through this book. On the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. The queen Esther the, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Verse five, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Where is this person that wants to do it? Where is this scandal, this loser, this dirtbag? Where is he? Who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, That guy right there, that guy right there. An adversary, an enemy, the vile Haman. And think about this, picture this scene. Haman is caught like a rat in a trap, see. But what, this is what I want you to understand. God has choreographed the entire scene. Verse nine, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. Wonder how that got there. Oh, he had a set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king's like, really? You know what? Impel him on it. Like, that's not the funny part, people. You're a sick congregation, but anyway. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. And I want you to read the book, but the rest of the book describes the Jews' celebration for what God had accomplished to save the nation through Esther because she took a stand for such a time as this. By the way, let me just say this. The Jews still celebrate this every spring. It's called the Festival of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And what happens is they commemorate the defeat of Haman's plot to massacre the Jews. And when they teach the kids in school about their history, they still do that in Israel, when they teach them, this is what happens. When the kids, every time they hear the word Haman, they stomp their feet, they beat their desk, and they go, ah, just to drown out his name. That's how detestable he is to them, to this day. 
Incredible story, but there's a principle, I think, for every one of us that jumps off the pages of the story of Esther, and it's this. We will never take the risk to do great things until we believe that one person can make a difference. Let me say that again. We will never ever take the risk to do great things until we really believe that one person can make a difference. Do you know why Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death? It's because he felt one person can make a difference. You ever heard the incredible story of Nathan Hill? He was one of the spies for the colonies when they were trying to defeat the British and he was caught being a spy in 1776. I think it was September 22nd, he was executed. And they asked him, did he have any last words? And this is what he said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Why would he say something like that? Because see, he, he believed that one person could make a difference. In 1955, there was an African-American woman that got on a city bus and sat down. The bus was full, a white individual came up and said, I need your seat, get up. She wouldn't get up. And Rosa Parks was arrested. Do you know why we know the name Rosa Parks? Because she believed that one person could make a difference. And again, that's really, really easy to say, but do you know what it requires? If you're gonna be the one person that makes a difference, you can't be worrying about what everybody else is going to think. And that's not easy. I know we love to say, I don't really care what they think. That's not true, we do, we do care. But do you know what helps me? It helps me sometimes just to remember that I don't answer to other people, see? It helps me to remember that I answer to God. And this is what I've discovered over the years as Christians, God will give us the wisdom and he will give us the courage to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. You know, these have been a tough few months for all of us. I, without a doubt, I will tell you this. I have had to make some of the hardest decisions I have ever made in my life over the last few months, both personally and professionally. Okay. I'm talking about the kind of decisions, and some of you can relate to this. You just know at the end of the day, it's really all on you. I mean, if it goes south, it's, it's, it's all on you. And I, I'm not gonna lie to you, it is a lonely place to be. You know what I learned from the coronavirus? I have learned um, that I have not done a great job of teaching the foundational truths of God's word. And I need to do a better job. And you know why it's hard? It's not, it's not very popular, you know? And one of the reasons I, I know that is because I look at the Christians that make up Hope Community Church, I look at the Christians that make up our culture, and I realize people, they, their lives are dictated by their feelings and their emotions. They're not dictated by biblical principles. And it's because they don't know the Bible. They don't trust the Bible. We love to say that Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly, but if you don't believe it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter when the coronavirus is going on. When it says that I give you a peace that passes all understanding, it sounds great to quote that, but if you don't believe it, if, you, if your faith's not built on it, if it's not foundational, it won't change your life. I just before this service prayed with a friend. Fourth stage lung cancer. Chemo's not working. Trying one last thing, maybe give him a little bit more time. He called it a Hail Mary. And when we finished praying with him up in my office, I said, your joy, your joy is amazing. 
And he says, Mike, guess what? Stage four lung cancer, best thing that's ever happened to my family. Pulled our family together like never, ever before. And see, that's the guy whose life is built on the principles and foundation of God's word. And when the storms come, the house doesn't cave because you know that God's word is firm and it stands forever. And I was, this has been a struggle for me as it has for you. I told Laura, I said, I don't know that I can do this job much longer because to do what I have to do, what I feel God wants me to do, I know God wants me to do, I don't know that it's gonna be popular. Because as I said, the word of God divides, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So Laura got up one morning, she says, she's never said this in all my years of marriage. She says, God gave me a word for you. I'm like, thanks, she's gone Pentecostal on me, you know. <laughs> she said, lead, lead, lead until you leave. That's what you should do. You do what you know God wants you to do. And if you perish, you perish. And if the word of God divides and we lose some people, we lose some people. And if the finances shrivel up and we go unemployed, then we're, then we're unemployed. But you do what God wants you to do. You may be in the same situation. And you may be the only one who feels the way you feel, but you know what? You are one. You are one. But I'm telling you, the, you'll never make the right choice. You'll never make the hard choice until you actually believe deep down in your heart with God behind you that one person can make a difference. Here's my advice. Refuse to settle for anything less than fulfilling God's calling on your life. Learn that from Esther. Refuse to settle for anything less, less than fulfilling God's calling on your life. Maybe God is calling you to do something specific for such a time as this. And if you perish, well, you perish. But here's the cool thing. You go out God's way. That's a great place to be. When you know that you're doing God's thing, God's way, it gives you confidence and boldness and security. And there's a sense of invincibility. See? And I know this has been a tough series. The next one's going to be more encouraging. I'm going to talk about joy. How you can have joy in every aspect of your life, how you can have joy in your relationship with God, joy in all of your relationships with others, how you can have joy in your life. We'll talk about that, but if we've learned anything in 2020, we've learned that life can be hard at times and, 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 and pain cannot be avoided. So I will leave you with this question. When life doesn't make sense, do you turn to God or do you turn away from him? You ever thought about that? When life is unraveling, do you run to God or do you decide I'm gonna take everything into my own hands and I'm gonna run away from him? Let the book of Esther encourage you that God is always present. Let me tell you, if you learn nothing else from the book of Esther, understand this. Regardless of what you see on the news, regardless of what's going on in your home, regardless of what's going on behind you, I promise you this, God is working behind the scenes. Trust as Esther did, obey as Esther did and watch God silently weave all of these events together 
not just for his glory, but for our good. What a great story. But it's not just a story of Esther. It's the story of the faithfulness and reliability of our God. People, build your life on this book. It is the only thing that will withstand all that's going on in this world. The principles, bring your life into alignment with it. Say, if I perish, I perish it. But this is what God says, and this is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm telling you, you'll be like a rock. You'll be like a rock. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible story of light after all this darkness in these books. Just reminding us that regardless of how dark the world is and how dark the culture is and how dark the news may be, there's a God of the universe who is behind the scenes weaving his plan together. He will not be sidetracked. You will not be shaken. You will not shake your head and say, I had no idea that they, were, they had the potential to make this kind of mess. Nothing shocks you. Steady and calm. Father, help us to understand the Jeremiah 29, 11, that you have plans to prosper us, not to harm us, hope for a future. And when we stand on those kind of truths, then we experience the abundant life, regardless of what's around us. We, we experience the peace that passes all understandings, regardless of what's going on around us. Give us that kind of confidence. Give us that kind of faith. And we pray all these things in your most incredible, glorious, powerful, holy name. And through this name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. And all God's people said. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.